Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Strategy International. If this is your first time here, uh, Strategy International is a global think tank, brings together great minds um, uh, and discussions on uh, a number of issues uh, internationally, such as uh, international policy and politics, uh, uh, defense and strategy, economy, trade, technology, environment, and much, much more, with a huge array of experts from all over the world. Um, speaking of experts, we have an amazing uh, program again today uh, with Dr. Elia Buaun. Such a pleasure to have you on uh, on the podcast, uh, uh, Eli. Thank you, George. Pleasure is mine. Uh, you have a huge responsibility, and we're going to talk a little bit about what you do um, because you work in a region that, for probably you know decades, has been inflicted by. Uh, quite possibly the biggest uh, issues, uh, political, social, economic, and we're going to discuss all that. You're the director of uh, the North Amer- uh, the North Africa programs and the regional hub uh, over at the United States Institute for Peace. Um, so I want to I want to pick your brain a little bit first before we get onto the topics, just so we can discuss a little bit what is this organization and the work that it does. Before we do that, let me invite everyone to head on over to strategyinternational.org where you will find all the information on Strategy International and all the great work that is being done over there. Um, Ellie, tell me, to, to tell everyone a little bit about this uh, this organization, wh- what it is, and you know what it, what its role is, and why it's important. The work that is done there. Yeah, uh, George, thank you very much again for hosting me. So, the U.S. Institute of Peace was established by the Congress in the United States in 1984 as a uh, federally funded national institution dedicated to the mission of preventing and mitigating violent conflicts. And usually we achieve our mission through three types of programs. We do capacity building programs that target both governments and non-governmental institutions. We uh, also work with policymakers. We try to inform policymaking in the US, but also in the host countries. Uh, and the third type of program is dialogue. So depending on the situation or the context, we use dialogue as a mean to either prevent violence or to mitigate the impact of uh, ongoing violent conflicts. Uh, in the MENA region, we have uh, uh, on the ground presence in three countries, in Iraq, Libya, and Tunisia. Uh, but we also cover other countries through either the training component or the research and policy component of our work this is fascinating and i and i'm going to talk to everyone as as a former political advisor myself who we relied so heavily on local actors and organizations um and different community groups uh, to help us to advise us uh and it was crucial um in in addition to being necessary and imagine this is only you know regional provincial politics here in Canada, uh, imagine on a global uh, level how important it is, especially from the U.S., um, that, that that has this active involvement and interest uh, all over the world to have actors such as yourself who have this hands-on knowledge on what is happening on, on the ground. Uh, 
how often do you consult with the the U.S. government? I mean, is there a constant flow of information on what's happening on the ground? Well, definitely, we work very closely with the U.S. government in both the legislative and the executive branch. Uh, but uh, I must say that USIP is an independent institution, mm-hmm. so we are not affiliated uh, directly to the administration. Uh, but we do work very closely with, uh, you know, with the different U.S. embassies, with different bureaus within State Department, uh, with the Congress and the Senate and, and other components of the U.S. government. Let's get on to the challenges. Uh, there, there's so much that I want to 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 ask you about, and the, and the role that you've had in these regions or in these countries. Uh, but like I said before, and for those wondering what MENA stands for, it's Middle East North Africa. Like I said before, it's quite possibly, you know, the most turbulent region in my opinion. Uh, I mean, if we leave aside what's happening right now in Eastern Europe, uh, it doesn't exclude the fact that these regions still. Um, you know, they're still going through the challenges that that they're going through. Um, and, and, and even though, like, historically, it's been decades that this region has been afflicted by all these challenges, I think in the last 10 to 15 years, it has taken kind of like this snowball effect where probably from the Arab Spring in Tunisia until now, we've seen these series of uprisings uh, happening across the region. Um what impact has that had? And if we talk specifically in in Tunisia, um, how are things over there now? And how did the uprising over, what, 10 years ago now influence a little bit uh, what's happening on the ground in the rest of the region? Well, I think, you know, one can think of different implications of what happened since 2011. But the one that I really like to highlight in most of my discussions and interviews is the general sense of disappointment. So 12 years after what happened in Tunisia, in Egypt, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, and other places, I think uh, most of the, of the populations here in the MENA region came to the conclusion that that was a missed opportunity. And my personal reading is that, uh, you know, that, that the opportunity was missed actually because there was not enough emphasis put on the economic and social aspect of the transition, but there was a full-fledged focus on the political aspect. So we've seen all the international community, international organizations focusing on elections, on transitional justice, on constitutional reform, etc. But there was very little effort and investment, uh, both technical and financial investment, put into reforming the economies, reforming the social structures and making sure that, uh, you know, people can live in dignity in these countries uh, in the in the in the aftermath of a political change. So basically now in the in the collective perception of most of the people in the region, this political change basically generated a much more challenging economic and social situation. And uh, democracy as a concept is now being blamed by a majority of Tunisians, Libyans, Lebanese, Iraqis, Syrians, etc., as being the, the, the culprit, basically, mm-hmm. for this situation. So, uh, you know, the whole thing needs to be reworked, and I'm afraid it will take some time before you convince a whole new generation 
that the problem was not the type of the regime itself, but the problem was the fact that there was no investment, no attention by the local stakeholders and by the international stakeholders. So here I'm not blaming one specific party. I'm just telling that, uh, I'm just saying, sorry, that everyone focused on one aspect of the transition and uh, they ignored the other aspects. And but I think this, this is... Uh, yeah, but this is what I find complex in these situations because how can you um, uh, take the approach that you just mentioned, you know, to, to, to look at more economic and social factors without first establishing a sound government? No, definitely. In, uh, you know, in a dictatorship, you can't, uh, you can't do any of this. But what I said is that once the regime has changed in Egypt, in Tunisia, uh, the focus was, as I said, on elections, transition, justice, constitution, and much, much less on other aspects that uh, touch on the daily life of the population. And, you know, there is a you know, there is a success story in Eastern Europe. I do acknowledge that there are a lot of contextual differences between the Eastern Europe and the, and the MENA region. But uh, I think the comprehensive approach that the Europeans, the Council of Europe and the European Union uh, embraced with the, with the countries that were just going out of the Soviet Union is a proof of concept. It's basically not only work on the political side, you also work on other sides, to make sure that the transition is uh, is an integrated one. It's not, you know, you, you can't have a, a very speedy political transition and a stagnating economy uh, or a, you know, deteriorating uh, living conditions. It feels, and, and like you mentioned uh, so rightfully at the beginning, you're, you're an independent organization. This is a nonpartisan uh, institution. You have nothing to do with direct politics or governments, uh, government affiliations. Do you feel that sometimes the approach, it makes total sense what you're saying, and perhaps through the analysis and the knowledge that you've acquired over the years, maybe you're right, that there was a, a sort of blind eye to other factors that should have been um, considered. Do you sometimes find yourself being in conflict with the political uh, pressures into these regions versus your more practical and hands-on approach with based on what you just said? I mean, not really, because uh, a lot of policymakers who are today part of the U.S. government or even governments in the EU, I'm not talking only about the United States, mm -hmm. uh, they do acknowledge that there was, uh, you know, something wrong uh, going on and that uh, the approach should have been different in, uh, you know, in, in many ways. Uh, and having said this, I don't claim that in 2011 I would have known all of this. Right. Uh, so it's something that we learned over the years. I think everyone learned it the hard way, uh, but this is this is you know this is the situation today. I think this is the the most logical explanation for what's happening today. Let, let's move on a little bit more uh, eastward, where we're seeing things happening now. For example, uh, um, uh, in Libya, where there's a provisional government and they they're having you know a hard time establishing the foundations of the, the, this new uh, governance that should normally take over uh, following, you know, the, the the democratic principles that, you know, the different partners are trying to implement. Um, what's happening on that ground? Because there are stuff that are, that, that are happening that are affecting more uh, super regional uh, um, uh Elements, and I'm talking about, for example, this agreement that has been signed with uh, with Turkey, 
which technically shouldn't have been signed because it's only a provisional government. So there's a lot of advancement happening on the ground that perhaps shouldn't be happening that may have long-term uh, a long-term impact in that country. Yeah, well, uh, you know, the conflict in Libya is uh, is multi-layered. Uh, there is definitely a regional dimension, so a very strong competition between Egypt, Turkey, and uh, you know, Italy and other uh, other regional or international powers. Uh, and there is a very strong di- uh, domestic dimension, uh, which is based has to do basically with the. Uh, the grudges or the grievances uh, that many Libyans have against the concept of a centralized uh, government mm-hmm. and the marginalization, the exclusion they feel because of the heavily centralized governance system that uh, currently exists in Libya. Uh, and then there's this third dimension that has to do with the social cohesion. So basically, there are also a huge problem. Uh, when it comes to how diversity in Libya is being accepted and or managed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have the you know, implications of 42 years of uh, a socialist economic model that was you know, based on a one-man show with, you know, with his kids, etc. So, uh, so going back to your question, yes, uh, I think that uh, the regional powers uh, are not always helpful when it comes to Libya. Sometimes they're pushing for agendas that are that are you know uh, prolonging the crisis in Libya. Uh, and we know that some of these uh, countries have uh, supported armed groups, and these armed groups have become, with time. Uh, well established and uh, you know some of them are even co-opting state institutions rather than the opposite mm-hmm. uh, so these are acts that you know some policymakers uh, may think that uh, you know they are short term but in fact the implications of these decisions and these uh, uh, these actions uh, will be long term and will affect the security uh, of the region uh, in general um the last uh, MOU that was signed between Turkey and the government in Tripoli uh, was perceived as a provocation by a lot of Libyans, but also by other regional powers. And we've seen, you know, kind of a retaliation by Egypt uh, by also taking unilateral moves to uh, delineate their maritime border uh, with, with Libya. Uh, I don't think these actions are helpful. Obviously, this is this triggers a chain reaction. You know, you do something, the other party does something else, and then we get into a vicious circle of uh, negative actions and risk of violence and uh, etc. So I think that everyone, uh, whether Libyans or the countries who are uh, pushing for specific agendas in Libya, they have an interest now to sit around the table and, you know, find a common ground on how to move on from this unhealthy and unhelpful situation to something that is more uh, that is less violent that is more constructive especially that many of these countries you know if you look at the economic situation in turkey in egypt in italy even in france uh, it doesn't look good so everyone needs to take a step back and to look at how uh, they can minimize uh, the the violence in libya or even stop it if if that's possible altogether 
And uh, as I said, try to find a common ground to move on to a more constructive path. Um, I don't I don't see how this path will will be viable or will be useful uh, to Libyans and to the non-Libyans who are uh, playing a role in Libya. So, so, so what's happening on the ground? Because this is taking much longer than anyone had initially uh, thought it would take to to establish sort of the principles of moving forward towards a sound governance. Uh, I know the UN is heavily involved in there, but are we seeing any progress or we're still stuck in the middle of these two factions trying to establish their um, their their influence or their 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 own power? Well, there are. There are much more than two factions uh, at this stage in Libya. Uh, you know, people usually uh, look at it as a binary situation where you have the East and the West. But in fact, you know, for anyone who knows a little bit about Libya, you can definitely see much more fragmentation in the West, fragmentation in the East, and a completely marginalized South uh, that is not even taken into account by many, many uh, politicians. So uh, so it's not only two parties trying to struggle for power. There is, a, as I said before, a deeper problem of, uh, of a social contract, basically. You know, there is, there is a need to uh, revisit the social contracts among Libyans to make sure that a new social contract is inclusive uh, and that there is a, a, a very advanced level of uh, decentralization or federalism that allows people to basically feel that they have control over their resources and over the decisions that are conditioning their daily life. Because, you know, there's no way you can conceive any kind of stability in Libya with a bunch of people sitting in Tripoli and making decisions about Sibha or about Benghazi or about Derna or other places. So uh, Libya needs to be... Uh, Somehow federal. I mean, federalism is a big title, of course, and there, you know, you can have, uh, you know, fifty shades of grey within federalism. Uh, so, but I, I don't see any any possibility to stabilize Libya uh, in, uh, you know, with, while maintaining a centralized government as it is today. Right. Do you feel that there's any progress being made, or are we looking more into a, a more long term? Uh, no, so, so far, uh, you know, if you look at the political process in Libya, uh, you can see that there is a huge deal of stagnation. So uh, I personally, I didn't see any progress in the last few months. Uh, and, uh, you know, in my different meetings and discussions, I always emphasize the need for the uh, UN mission uh, to actually work harder with the countries who have influence in Libya rather than with the Libyans themselves. I think that the discussions with the Libyans themselves have reached a ceiling, and that without a regional settlement that includes you know, Turkey, Egypt, Italy, and other countries, uh, I don't see how the Libyans can move forward uh, with, with any, any kind of political uh, action or plan at this mm -hmm. stage. I want to discuss with you a little bit uh, Iran. Uh, we've had a couple guests on the program where we've uh, touched a little bit upon what's happening in Iran. Um, this is something that, you know, for the younger uh, people listening to the show uh, and that hadn't experienced uh, the events from the 80s in Iran are experiencing this for the first time where there is a significant uprising in Iran. What does this mean uh, and what's happening, at least where I'm from in Canada, uh, the media was um, was all over this 
uh, uprising. And it seems in the last couple of weeks that we're seeing much less of it. Um, it's the media. We're not gonna <laughs> we're not gonna criticize what they decide to to show us or not. But on the ground, is it still as active as it was? Has uh, uh, are there efforts to suppress it from the regime, or you know what's going on? Are the flames still burning uh, strong? Well, I think that uh, first of all, what's happening in Iran is the beginning of a generational change. Uh, I don't see how. You know, the new generation will accept the state of affairs as they were in Iran for the last 40 years. You know, I understand that people who made the revolution in 1979 might be attached to some of their, you know, strategic priorities and expansionist agenda. But I can hardly see a new generation embracing all of this at a time when Iran is suffering from serious economic hardship. So uh, so I see this as the beginning of a generational change that will eventually, not in the short term, but hopefully and possibly in the midterm, will lead to a real change at the political level. Uh, so everyone who's betting that what's happening today in Iran will lead tomorrow to a change in the regime, I think, are making a wrong calculation. Uh, but there's definitely a midterm uh, prospect of seeing some changes happening uh, because the new generation will, you know, will be more active in the labor market. They will be more active in the political realm. And some of them will become decision makers, hopefully. So things started to move. It will take time. But I I see this as part of an overall, you know, redirection that's happening in Iran. Now, when it comes to the intensity of the protest, uh, you know, as any protest movement, the intensity can go up and down depending on several factors. Uh, And the most important factor is the level of suppression uh, that the authorities are using. And we've all seen, so it's not a secret, that the Iranians have been using very, you know, aggressive ways to try and control or suppress the protest movement. So it's only normal to see some, you know, uh, low intensity uh, versus high intensity uh, moments in in the protest. Do you think there's any uh, real possibility, like is it feasible at all in your expert opinion to establish these democratic principles that we're used to here in the West in that region? We've spoken, uh, we've had some other people on the podcast that think that you know the the way things have been functioning for you know for millennia or for generations in the region it's you know they don't have the the same concepts or the same understanding that we have here of what a civil society is or what sound governance is you know the 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 principles of you know rights and freedoms that we have um and it's not the same i i'm just curious to know in your opinion on the ground, what is the sentiment? Are people aware of, you know, this Western way of life? And if so, do they envision that ever at all in their communities and their countries? Well, it depends on how you define democracy. Uh, but before getting into this, I'd like to highlight that 100 years ago, a lot of European countries uh, were as bad as we are today in the region. For sure. So, yeah. so, so there is, uh, of course, I am hopeful. I think that, uh, you know, the region will have to move to a new 
governance model that is not the same. I mean, what, what applies in Libya will not apply in Syria. What applies in Syria is not suitable for Iraq, etc., etc. I'm not saying the same model should be applied everywhere. I'm saying that there must be an organic movement uh, from the bottom up uh, that will basically uh, need to reflect on how governance can be more transparent, more effective, and more inclusive. I think these are the three pillars that we are missing in the region. Now, whether you call this Western democracy, Eastern democracy, uh, non-democracy, it doesn't matter. You know, the name in itself has become problematic uh, because it's always tied to a specific Western agenda. So I personally, I tend to avoid using the name uh, because, you know, I, when I want to discuss with people, I want to discuss the substance, not the name itself. Mm -hmm. And the substance that we need governance models that, uh, as I said, are inclusive, are transparent, and are efficient. These are the three main uh, elements that we're missing in most of the countries. So uh, we've seen dictatorships who had uh, efficient bureaucracies, but they were not inclusive and they were not transparent, right? We've seen some inclusive governments after 2011, but they were, ne they were neither efficient nor transparent. So, mm. you know, we never had the three elements at one time. Uh, and if we manage to get any governance model that is that combines the three elements, I think the region will be in a much, much better situation. Uh, and whether we agree to call it democracy later on, that's I think that becomes a trivial, uh, trivial issue. There's a fascinating thing uh, happening in Syria, the way that I see things. And. Everywhere, for example, you know, we spoke about Libya, we spoke about um, uh, Tunisia, uh, Iraq, for example, where, you know, the, the, the involvement of, you know, the West or other partners uh, brought certain changes in governance. Uh, a shift in leadership, whether it was good or not, is, is to be argued. It's fascinating to me that after all these years in Syria, the government is still in place, mind you, you know, they're, 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 they're dealing with a, a much larger issue there rather than just focusing on what do we do with a government because now we have an extremist um, uh, faction organization that is pretty much maybe not in control but pretty present um, in the region. What's happening over there and, how, you know, what's your point of view and what's your take on that? Yeah, well, when it comes to Syria, I think that the regime was able to survive not because of its own strength, but because of uh, the outstanding and exceptional support that uh, Bashar al-Assad received from both the Iranians and the Russians. Had it not been for the Russian uh, support, and especially the Air, Air Force support, and the Iranian involvement on the ground, including, you know, uh, hiring or recruiting militias and armed groups from all over the place to come and fight in Syria, Bashar al-Assad wouldn't have been uh, able to survive this crisis. And the other reason, uh, or the reason why the, most of the Syrians gave up on the project of changing the regime in Syria, is that, you know, in just a few years, between 2012 and 20, 2015, the Syrians were left uh, to choose between a khalifa and a dictator. Uh, and, and here I blame especially most of the Western countries for leaving the Syrians 
uh, to choose between a Khalifa and a, and a dictator. And obviously, you know, given the various social and cultural factors, people opted to, you know, to stay with the dictator rather than to go for a Khalifa. Mm-hmm. Uh, but had the West been more consistent in the way they supported the Syrian opposition, uh, you know, and if you know, if if they would they would they wouldn't have allowed for the uh, extremist groups to co-opt the opposition in Syria, then the situation would have been different. Uh, I guess now it's too late. Uh, Syria has to be looked at from a completely different perspective at this stage. I don't think there is any hope of a regime change in the short to mid-term. So, in your opinion, what needs to be done? Like when you're saying that needs to be looked at from a different perspective, what is that perspective? Well, unless the the you know the case of Iran and Russia has not been dealt with, I can't see you know how things can change in Syria. As long as Russia and Iran as are as invested as they are today, uh, there's no prospects to do anything in Syria at this stage. One of the longest running uh, item on the agenda of the UN has been the Israeli-Palestinian. Uh, uh, issue. Um, this also seems to be going in waves. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. You know, the, there was a recent election over there, and arguably it's probably the most right-wing uh, government that has ever been established in, in that country. Uh, will that new government further alienate, in your opinion, any possible efforts towards any stable resolution there? And this is what we. This is what's happening today. Yes. So the answer is yes. Uh, the current government in Israel is resorting to provocative actions that will basically uh, shut down any possibility of uh, having a genuine dialogue between the Palestinians and the Israelis, which is the only way to resolve the uh, the outstanding differences between both parties. I don't see, you know, I don't see any possibility to have a. Uh, you know, a military resolution to the conflict uh, between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Uh, The only way is to have them, you know, engage in a serious dialogue. And what the current government is doing is not helping at all with that. uh, that. But you know what I find fascinating, Ali? The fact that this government is there, uh, I mean, it's there for a reason. It was elected by the people. And the people, obviously, there must be some sentiment uh, that has trickled down to the people in order for them to elect this sort of government. So do you think we've entered into this new, uh, perhaps, generation where this is the way that they think about the Palestinians or vice versa, and we may not be able to you know, even think of a possible solution in the future or in the near future? Yeah, but this is a problem that is not exclusive to Israel. You know, sure the, the rise of populist, uh, radical, extreme candidates or political figures or parties is a problem that many countries are suffering from, uh, uh, not only in the MENA region, but also in the West. So, mm-hmm. so yes, I mean, there is uh, Israel is going through a change in its political landscape that is similar to many, many other countries. Uh, what is aggravating uh, the situation in Israel is that, you know, this government uh, is not only dealing with the usual stuff that governments do, but they are dealing with, a, as you said, probably the longest standing conflict in the region uh, that is very complex, that has not only geographical 
dimensions and resource-related issues, but also you have an ideological and religious dimension that are very strong. Uh, so it's all adding up to become a very complex situation. Uh, but yes, I mean, the, you know, the majority of Israelis elected this government. It doesn't mean that they can't elect another one uh, that is more uh, moderate, I would say, and more amenable to discuss with the Palestinians, uh, you know, how the cycle of violence can be broken, basically. And honestly, I see a responsibility on both parties. I'm not, I'm not saying the Israelis are the only ones responsible for the cycle of violence. I think there are some tough choices that the Palestinians have to make as well mm -hmm. uh, in that regard. Uh, but all of this can happen only through a genuine dialogue. Uh, it can't happen, uh, you know, while the war is ongoing. I want to talk to you about, uh, I mean, you know, we're talking about all these countries and the different efforts that have been uh, attempted, whether by the West or other international partners. And there's there, there's a player that often isn't directly looked at, but is omnipresent. And, and I want to talk to you a little bit about Turkey. Uh, you know, Turkey is a, is a country, you know, that for years has been trying to assert its influence Uh, as a regional superpower, it, it has had a, a huge involvement, for example, in the conflict in Syria. Uh, we spoke a little bit about its involvement in Libya as well. Um, and, and that, you know, the actions that the Turkish government has been taking probably in the last decade, it hasn't been playing. It hasn't really been playing out favorably with certain countries that were considered somewhat influential in the region, for example, Egypt or or, or Saudi Arabia. Uh, what's your take on that, on, you know, Turkey's uh, efforts in establishing themselves or that, that country as, um, as a regional uh, power or superpower, if you will? Well, whether we like it or not, Turkey is a regional power at this stage. Uh, you know, Turkey is a big country and they were able to leverage some of their strength to achieve this status of a regional power. Uh, what I see positive in, uh, in Turkey's uh, you know, uh, posture, uh, at least in the last two years, that they were able to revisit their foreign policy from being an extremely aggressive one prior to 2019 to a, to a, to a foreign policy that is less aggressive, that is more prone to Uh, collaboration with other regional powers. So we've seen a rapprochement with the Emiratis, a rapprochement with the Saudis. At some point, there was a, you know, a serious and very hopeful dialogue, a very promising dialogue uh, with Egypt. Uh, my understanding is that now it's less, uh, uh, you know, it's less promising, let me put it this way. Uh, but I'm sure that both countries will realize that it's better to have a dialogue than to be confronting each other in different theaters in the region. Um, so I'm really hopeful. I don't know if this will happen or not, but I'm, I'm really hopeful that the Turks will continue with this approach of trying to mend the relationship with the, with the other countries in the region. And ultimately, what will save the region is to have a new architecture for peace and security that will involve all the regional powers. So, you know, you have the some of the big GCC countries, you have Turkey, you have Iran, you have Israel, you have Egypt. Uh, there are heavyweight countries in the region that need to sit together at some point 
and decide how to manage. Like uh, so, basically form a steering committee and see, decide how to manage this region because we know that the international powers are not in the mood any anymore of you know uh, not only not in the mood of unilateralism but even not bilateralism. You know, I don't see. Russia and the United States managing the region as they used to do in the 70s and the 80s. So there is a need for these regional powers to acquire some maturity and to sit around the table and decide how, what's the best way of managing this uh, this part of the world. I just want to question a little bit your uh, what you just said about Turkey's recent, maybe less aggressive approach in 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 foreign affairs, perhaps in the region. Uh, but we're seeing, when it comes to Europe, for example, we're seeing a complete the complete opposite, where they're uh, they're going kind of countercurrent, where where they're trying to object NATO's expansion with uh, uh, Finland and uh, and Sweden, um, the tensions in the East Mediterranean. Um, the, the the stance they've taken, you know, with the Ukraine and Russia conflict as well, uh, their involvement, for example, in the conflict in uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia. Uh, there's a lot of uh, the you know there's a lot of experts and there's a lot of literature out there coming out in the last maybe month or so on uh, Russia's aggressive stance in in their international foreign policy to the fact where there's an argument made that maybe they should get expelled from NATO. Obviously, it's not possible. I don't think it's written anywhere. Uh, there, there aren't any provisions uh, in NATO to allow for that to happen, but we're seeing the complete opposite. Are, are, are we are we seeing a Turkey that is perhaps distancing itself from the West as, as an ally, being an, a NATO member, and uh, progressing more towards its roots in Asia and the Middle East? I think Turkey, as many, many other countries, are trying to adjust to this to the new multilateral reality uh, that has emerged in the last few years. Uh, no country, neither Turkey nor any other country, can rely on an alliance with one of the superpowers anymore. Uh, we have now at least three superpowers, if not more. Uh, and uh, every country is trying to, you know, calibrate the relationship between these uh, these you know let me say big big uh, big powers so uh, you know on the issue of objecting finland and sweden's entry into nato i think they are conditioning uh, their approval with specific measures against the kurds uh, rather than objecting for strategic reasons so it's basically they're leveraging their membership in NATO to get some guarantees that uh, you know funding streams will be uh, tracked and controlled, etc. Uh, and uh, I'm not here defending what Turkey is doing. I think you know I have a lot of comments about uh, what Turkey did and continues to do in so many parts of the world. But there is, you know, objectively speaking, you can see that there was a recalibration of their foreign policy in the last few years, mm-hmm. and that they. Uh, they embraced a more moderate approach by engaging in serious dialogues with the countries that I listed before, uh, and you know these are facts. It's not it's mm-hmm. not my analysis. So it's uh, in uh, from a comparative perspective, uh, their foreign policy is less aggressive now. Whether it's completely constructive, one hundred percent constructive, I don't think so. Uh, I don't want to take up a lot of your time. I'm just curious to know because obviously you have a, an important presence on the ground where we, like we've discussed, uh, is really, um, uh, you know, it presents 
conflicting uh, and troublesome uh, situations, do you sometimes feel that you know the actions in the region that are taken by the international partners, you know, more often than not, the USA, but you know, in addition to the USA, we're talking about other international partners, are are sometimes too precipitated without, uh, you know, a proper understanding of local or regional challenges and an understanding of the repercussions that those actions could maybe have in the long term? Well, yes, I see less strategic, uh, uh, less strategy in the diplomacy, uh, in the foreign, in the Western diplomacy more specifically. Uh, and now the obsession of winning the next election in four years is prevailing over, you know, the strategic considerations that we used to see 20 or 30 years before when we, you know, when there was a Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union. Uh, so, yes, uh, the Western diplomacy is becoming more interest-based and less value-based. It's becoming less strategic, more transactional. And uh, at the end of the day, the timeline of any government or administration is four years. While many of the regional powers who are competing with the West, if you take Iran, Turkey, and other countries in the region, they have a much longer timeline to to strategize. So, uh, and this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why they are able to make some gains here and there is because, you know, Europeans or the Americans are planning for four years while others are planning for a much longer period of time. That's very interesting. Um, so, 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 so you, you believe so, that it's, it's, it's a matter of approach. There should be like kind of like a new mindset involved with, um, with these approaches in, in that region. I think the West needs to go back to a more strategic diplomacy, you know, less transactional, more strategic. Uh, they need to leverage and nurture their relationship with their partners. Uh, you know, if you look at how, for example, Russia and Iran deal with their partners, even when they make mistakes, versus how the West deals with their partners or allies, uh, when they make mistakes, you see a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, there needs to be a completely different approach. Uh, as I said, that is more strategic and less transaction. Let me tell you just one you know, funny story. So a few years ago, the Iranian ambassador in Baghdad was asked why Iran is making, you know, or was able to make uh, so, so many, you know, so many gains in Iraq. In just a few years, while the American agenda or the Americans were not able to achieve uh, the goal of stabilizing Iraq. And his answer was quite uh, interesting. He said, you just count how many American ambassadors have been changed since 2003 versus how many Iranian ambassadors have been changed. And then you understand why we've been more successful. Uh, so, yes, it plays a role. I think it plays a role. Uh, and uh, the West. I think has to take a step back and think how to improve this aspect of their diplomacy. Very interesting, uh, Ellie. Thank you so much for taking uh, taking the time. I don't want to. Thank you. I don't want to take up uh, more of your time. I know that you're a busy man. Um, amazing uh, knowledge that you just shared with our listeners and viewers. Uh, that I invite once again to visit www.strategyinternational.org for any information on uh, on uh, on this think tank. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you and the time that you've taken to share this knowledge with uh, with our audience. Thank you, George. It was a pleasure talking to you and uh, 
looking forward to doing more with Strategy International. We're looking forward to that Thank as well. You. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.